first or the first 34 verses of Acts uh, 19. I'll be pretty heavy on the reading this morning. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, then there's, there's one in front of you. If you don't own one outright, then take that home. That'll be our gift to you. Uh, if you do have one but didn't bring it, then you can borrow that one but leave it here. I don't want to add to your collection at home. But uh, you are welcome to use that one. Just, just leave that one with us. On Tuesday morning, I got to the office and uh, I had something. I didn't, I didn't know what, but it was something heavy on my mind. So I sat down, started thumbing through the scriptures, and I started reading. I thought, oh, this is what's heavy on my mind. And so I uh, so put together a, a, a sermon that I just would, as I do sometimes, I'll, just, I'll use it one day. And then uh, not long after that, Harvey came into the office and said, hey, can you cover for me Sunday? I thought, oh, well. Uh, yes, I can. I just happened to have written a sermon. So um, this uh, wrote this on, on Tuesday. I put this together on, on Tuesday, and, and Harvey asked if I could cover for him. So, yeah, no, no problem. Uh, with that said, though, before we pray one more time, I want to kind of tell you where we're headed this morning with Acts 19, because Acts 19 is very heavy on the Holy Spirit and, uh, and, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We'll read a lot with, with, with what, how Paul kind of walks led by the Holy Spirit, and then what are the effects of, of that in his personal life and, and with, with those he surrounds himself with. We'll see that this morning. But I want to do some deconstruction first because I feel like in, in America, no matter if you are religious and Christian or if you are a non-believer and want nothing to do with Jesus, there seems to be a stereotype or a reputation about the South that, that we live in the Bible Belt uh, of America, right? Like, I mean, if you've never heard that, then I'm shocked that I'm introducing you to that phrase, but we're, we live in the Bible Belt of, uh, of America. And so for some, they would say, who don't live here, maybe they would say, or maybe some who do live here, they would say of the Bible Belt, hey, if you want to meet some very godly, salt of the earth, hospitable people, very kind, you know, that, that's down in the South, very nice people. Well, some would say, again, both being religious and maybe not religious, some would say of the reputation that we live in the Bible Belt, well, if you want to meet some, some bigots and some backward, overzealous religious people, that's down in the Bible Belt. So really, no matter if you're religious or non-religious, there's a stereotype and a reputation about where we live just culturally as it pertains to religion. Well, my concern for the Bible Belt, for the South, but specifically Alabama, since that's where we live, my concern is that we've confused Christianity with doing church things. There's nothing wrong with church things, but you can, you can serve at Good Hair Day, you can serve at Gifted Gadsden, you can board a plane and go to the Philippines, you can come and sit in this sanctuary or come to Wednesday night service or Wednesday night meal and, and, and ha- not have any desire to know any more of the Lord than you currently do. And yet we can come to church, and my, my concern is that we're, we're playing a game when we come to church. We're playing a game with Christianity. We think this is what makes us saved. So God will justify us before him because we simply came to church or we've been coming to church for most of our life. So I want to start there and kind of deconstruct what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul asks a question that's pretty heavy, so we'll get about verse 2 here in about 30 seconds. Uh, we'll start pretty heavy this morning, and then it might end lightly. I don't know, it depends on if we're on the best behavior, we'll see. But uh, it starts pretty heavy, and then we'll just go. It's my favorite way to teach, by the way, and preach. I love just expository preaching, focusing on a chapter or a whole book, and then just going verse by verse, word for word. So with that said, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get after it. God, would you speak now and move me out of the way? God, would you be so present in this room that no one even hears my voice? God, would you, would you do something I can't do, and would you speak to the soul? Would you bring conviction where it's needed? Would you bring encouragement where it's needed? 
give me the discernment to know when to press in and the discernment to know when to relinquish. And God, I pray I'll go as far as you allow me to go in this area. Lord, I do pray that everything spoken this morning is out of love. And I know I'll give an account for it before you. So God, I pray I'll be speaking with love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Acts 19, verse 1. This is Paul in Ephesus. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? All right, let me stop there. I want you to answer that question, not out loud, but just think about it. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why is that a, why is that a, a, a heavy question? What are the implications of that question? See, I read that and I start thinking, well, can somebody believe and not be filled with the Holy Spirit? Is that, is that even possible? So think about it. What do you know from the Scripture? What does your theology tell you? Your study of the Word, your church background, what does it tell you about when somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit? When does somebody, at what point does somebody receive the Holy Spirit? Two weeks ago I shared that I believed I was saved at seven years old and then I made this confession at 19. And Well, when, was I, when did I receive the Holy Spirit? At seven, when I made the confession, 19, when I, con- when I repented of sins, did I receive the Holy Spirit after I professed Jesus as Lord? Or did I receive the Holy Spirit, which is what led me to profess Jesus as Lord? At what point did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you said a prayer because you saw a scary skit about hell that might have freaked you out a little bit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit after you repented? Or again, did you receive the Holy Spirit, which is what moved you towards repentance and moved you towards confession? When did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did we receive the Holy Spirit as a small child, or did we receive the Holy Spirit as an adult? When did you receive it? Again, that's what I just want you thinking about. When did you receive the Holy Spirit? Is there evidence for, hey, this is how I used to live, but then here's the Holy Spirit. I can, and the, clearly there's evidence that I no longer live like that. So is there evidence, is there fruit of one led by the Spirit, and is there fruit and evidence of, of the flesh? Well, Paul answers that in Ephesians 5, 16 through 25. You don't have to turn there. You can if you'd like. I'll read it for you quickly. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, which is a lack of harmony within a group, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, which is simply disagreement that leads to discord, factions, which is a small organized dissenting group within a larger group, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So then if there are... If there's evidence and fruit of one who's led by the Spirit, and there's evidence and fruit of one whose, whose flesh is doing all the dictating, the flesh is, is your motivation for decisions. Again, is there evidence or fruit in our lives that we are led and filled with the Holy Spirit? 
Because we can claim we love the Lord and we can come to church, but that, that doesn't equate a life led by the Holy Spirit. And you'll see that coming up a little bit, little bit later in Acts 19. So how do I know then if I have the Holy Spirit? Here's a litmus test that, that Paul would reveal to you. Jesus would, would reveal this as well. Peter would speak to this. John would speak to this. Here's a litmus test for how do I know whether or not I have the Holy Spirit. Not just how do I know if I come to church and have good church. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. And I want that. I want you to come to church. I want great church attendance. But I also want discipleship to take place. So how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? A quick little question is, do you have any desire in your life, any desire for communion, for oneness with the Father, for fellowship with the Father? Jesus prayed for nothing less in John 17 than for you and I to have oneness with the Father. Do you desire that? Do you desire any connection, any spiritual growth? Do you desire spiritual maturity? Do you hunger or thirst for the Word of God? Do you find yourself, if you're on vacation, you don't read for three or four days, is there anything in you that thinks, man, I really, I really just, I want to have a devotion in the cup of coffee. I really just need some me and Jesus time. I need some moment where I can connect with the Lord. Do you long for that? Because if you do, there's your evidence that that's the Holy Spirit in you. Because surely it's not you who desires more of God, right? If the Bible says no one, no one desires, no one will be obedient to me, no one desires me. So surely it's not my flesh that wants more of God. Surely it's not my flesh that cries, Abba, Father. But rather, it's God in me that desires oneness with the Father. It's the Holy Spirit in me. It's the Spirit of God in me that desires communion and fellowship with the Father, that desires devotion to the Father. And so the opposite side of that is if, if you have no desire to grow in your faith, no desire to see the name of Jesus heralded, no desire to see his name hallowed, no desire to connect with God, no desire to read, study, pray, no desire to sing to him, to bring worship to him, no desire to connect with him. Despite then what you say about church and what you say about God, that would be evidence and proof that you do not have the Holy Spirit. Again, I know this is a heavy text. I know, that's why I didn't sleep well last night. So Paul asks these disciples of John, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, or did you just simply believe in God? They answered no, verse, verse 2, the second half, they answered no, we have not even heard that there is the Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Then Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. I want to stop there for a second. When we see that Paul goes into the synagogue, he goes into the temple to have these conversations, Paul is, is so led by the Spirit, okay, and his, and his knowledge of the Old Testament is very vast. In fact, Paul would boast, he said, if you think you know about Scripture, I know more. And by the way, Paul would also boast in his weakness. If you think you've sinned so much God can't love you, I promise I've sinned worse than you. So Paul would boast of his, of his previous way of life, of, of his wickedness, and he would boast that he just knows more Scripture than you and I do. And so when Paul, though, when he would go into the temples, when he would go into the synagogue, if somebody was struggling with their faith or if somebody said, explain to me how Jesus can be the Son of God, explain these things to me, Paul would appeal to their intellect. He wouldn't just say, well, 
I have a measure of faith that maybe you don't have. And so if you were as mature as I would, maybe you'd understand me. That, that's not what Paul says. He would reason with you. He would sit down. He's going to appeal to your intellect. Not simply say, well, I just believe God did it. No, he wanted to take his time and appeal and appeal to your intellect. So we see verse 9. But some of them, who Paul was speaking to in the synagogue, some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Again, that's way with the capital W, the way being Jesus. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now I'll stop there for a second. So when Paul makes his appeal to the intellect here, and then you, and you have individuals who become obstinate and they refuse to believe Paul's words, what did Paul, how did Paul respond to them? We just read it. What did Paul do? You don't have to answer right now, but what did Paul do? He says, Paul left them. So I read that and I think, man, should he have done that? Should a believer in Christ, a follower of Jesus, should we ever get to the point where we say, okay, I can't, I can't engage this anymore with you. I can't have this conversation. If it's going to lead to conflict and strife, if it's going to lead to quarreling, then you and I shouldn't have this conversation anymore. Did Jesus ever say anything about that? What did Jesus mean when he said, when you enter someone's home or a city or town, if there's a man of peace there, the peace, the presence of God will go from you and rest on them. But if there's not a man of peace there, then that spirit will come back to you. Then you are to shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them as you leave. Those are harsh words, right? So at what point do we step back as believers and say, I can no longer engage this. I can no longer speak to this or appeal to this. It's only going to lead to quarreling. It's only going to lead to strife. I can have nothing to do with this. I must leave. At what point do we get to that point? Do we ever get to that point? We'll keep going. Verse 10. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So Paul walks with so much anointing of the Holy Spirit, that where he goes, everywhere he goes, people can, either there's, there's, an, there's a, 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 an argument breaking out, and people, there's, there's something being, there's an uprising is the word I was looking for, there's either an uprising that Paul has, has entered the room, so now there's a disturbance, or people are at peace because there's a man of God in our presence. And the anointing of Paul is so thick that if he wiped the sweat of his brow with a rag, if he blew his nose in a handkerchief, which personally I think is a little bit gross, but if he blows his nose in a handkerchief and he just tosses it to the trash can or says, hey, honey, you take this away from me, that somebody would then say of the, the, the napkin, of the rag, somebody would say, no, 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 give that to me. I can put that on my child who can't walk and my crippled child will walk. Now, give me this snot-nosed rag and I can put it on my father and he'll be healed. Now, give this to me and I can touch my mother's eyes with it and, and she'll be able to see again so the anointing of God the presence of the Lord literally oozing out of Paul do we have such an anointing now I don't, I don't suggest you use a tissue or a sweat rag what about our words do our words carry any weight that it may benefit those who listen do our words or our actions bring any level of healing? Is the Holy Spirit in anything that we do? Anything that we say? We see this in verse 13. Some Jews went on, went around driving out evil spirits who tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. 
they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I've, I've mentioned this text before. Surely you, you've heard this text before. If you have any back, church background, you've heard this several times. But it's in this chapter, chapter 19, so I don't want to just ignore it. So I'll just briefly address it. When you have these seven sons of Sceva who hear Paul preaching in the name of Jesus and see what's accompanying the miracles that are accompanying Paul, what they then say is we can go do the same thing. We can invoke the same name of Jesus. We can do what Paul's doing. And so one day they call a man who's possessed by a demon. And they say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of this man. And then on this day the demon speaks up and says, now Jesus I know and Paul I'm familiar with, but who are you? Who are you? Which I then take that, and then I instantly feel convicted, like, am I any, do I have any worth to me as a believer? And what I mean by that is, is am, I, am, I, am I worthless? And not like, is my character worthless, do I have no value before the Lord? What I'm, what I'm referring to is, is the enemy threatened when I get up in the morning and put my feet on the floor? Is the enemy threatened that you woke up this morning and you have the rest of the day? Are you any threat to the enemy? Or would the enemy say of you or of me, now Jesus I know and Paul I'm familiar with, but who are you? Does the devil want to bring you down in the mornings and tell his minions, hey, bring her down, bring him down. Don't let him get to work. Don't let him get home from work. Don't let her see her children. She's going to tell them about Jesus and we can't have that. Does the enemy say that of you? Or does the enemy say when you wake up in the morning, who's that? Ah, don't worry about him. Don't worry about her. No threat to us. No threat. Let them, let them have their day. See to it that they get to work because they don't do anything but stir up stuff. So just see to it that they get where they're going. Or is the devil threatened by us because we carry with us the presence of God? And by the way, if you enter a fight and you have your clothes on and you leave the fight and you are naked and bleeding, you lost the fight. Verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Is the name of the Lord Jesus held in high honor in your home? Do you hold the name of the Lord Jesus in high honor? You say, well, it's just another name. It's not just another name. There's no name given to man under heaven by which we must be saved. It's not just another name. At the name of Jesus and only Jesus, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow down. It's not just another name. Is the name of Jesus held in high honor by you? Or do you only say the name of Jesus when you, when you really want to cuss? Does he only hear from you when you're angry? Does he ever hear from you when you want to praise him? Do you ever just say, God, thank you? We just sang about it a second ago. There's something so sweet about the name of Jesus. Something about that name. Now, I'll tell you what's something about that name. There's an authority to the name. Demons will flee at the name of Jesus. Sicknesses can be cast out in the name of Jesus. Prayers can be answered. Faith can be strengthened in the name of Jesus. It's not just another name. Many, verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery, so witchcraft, here it is again, brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total number came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely 
and then grew in power. But think about this. So now you have the Jews who are frustrated because here's Paul preaching that Jesus is the way to the Father, that he's the Son of God. And the Jews didn't like that language. They were still waiting for the Messiah. They didn't like that. Now you have the, the sorcerers and people dabbling in witchcraft. So you have the pagans. They're frustrated at Paul because Paul's preaching there's only one God. So we don't need multiple gods. There's only one God, and the way to get to God is Jesus Christ, whom y'all killed, but he rose from the dead. And now he's given the Holy Spirit, and here's evidence of the Holy Spirit. And so you can see where the Jews and the pagans now, are. there's an uprising taking place in this chapter. Then we see verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now again, I want to stop there for a second. Has Jesus ever caused a disturbance in your life? Are there things you once could do and say and see guilt-freely? But now you can't do that anymore. Why? Because Jesus has given you the Holy Spirit and he's causing a disturbance. There's conviction now on the other side of your little jaunts in Cassini. Is Jesus stirring amongst you or amongst your family or amongst your work and causing a disturbance, bringing conviction? If so, that's not a bad thing. Let's lean into him and press into him. Let's not lean away from him when we find that happening. Verse 24. So there's a great disturbance taking place. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in no little business for the craftsmen. So he was a skilled craftsman and, and brought in great business. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades. And he said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no god at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited or desecrated. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting. So why are they furious? Because Paul... Is preaching the truth. Has preaching the truth, have, has your preaching the truth ever made anybody furious? Has it ever offended someone? And not that you're trying to provoke or offend somebody, but the Bible's offensive. The gospel can be offensive. The word of God can be offensive. Why? Because God has given the Holy Spirit to us, which is at war now with our flesh. If somebody doesn't have the spirit side, then everything that is saying is going to wage war with them. Then we see in verse 28, and they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and they rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Has anybody ever had to hold you back from speaking the truth? Has anybody? Hey, I know you want to preach the truth right now, but... I can't do that here. Has anybody ever had to encourage you, hey, not, not today, not in this way? Have you ever heard such false teaching that you just were burning inside? I've got, I've got to say something. I've got to inquire of this. Do we know the scripture well enough to hear false teaching when we hear it? Verse 31, even some of the officials of the province Friends of Paul sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. And most people didn't know why they were even there. So they're just throwing rocks for no reason. 
They're just flipping cars over and lighting them on fire for no reason. They don't know why. They just see this chaos, so they're just going to enter into the conflict. I'm going to tell you, when I read this verse Tuesday, verse 32, and by the way, the rest of the, the, rest of the chapter ends with, uh, with the city clerk quieting down the crowds and saying, hey, let's calm this uproar down before this gets out of hand. And then Paul just continues on his ministry in chapters 20 throughout the rest. But in verse 32, when I read that Tuesday morning, my, my first thought, and, and you know, I, I, I don't... I don't I don't mean for this to, to well, I just say it, and, and I'm not trying to stir up anything, I, I promise you. When I read this in verse 32, this seemingly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Like, my first thought was, well, man, we're not much different here in the Methodist Church. You have one group saying, this is what I believe God desires of us. This is the, what I, the direction I believe God wants to take the United Methodist Church. And you have this side that says, this is the direction I believe God wants us to take the United Methodist Church. This is what I believe God stands for. Both sides claiming they've had a revelation from God. Somebody's lying. Somebody is not telling the truth. Despite how great the argument sounds because it has the appearance of wisdom because there's some scripture attached to it. The scripture has often been twisted. There's no way God has given a revelation that's in conflict and he's given it to two different people, two different groups inside simply our denomination. There's no way. Somebody's not telling the truth. Somebody's not speaking from the Spirit of God within them. And we look like the, the seven sons of Sceva saying, listen, in the name of Jesus, who, hey, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't, I don't trust you even dropping the name of Jesus. Will you, will I, can we remain faithful to the Lord even if it causes an uproar? Are we so filled and led with the Holy Spirit that we're willing to stand in there and say, this is the truth, this is what I believe. Let me tell you about God. There's only one way to Him. He loves you. There's one way to Him. It's through Jesus Christ. I know that's offensive to you, but Jesus said that's going to be offensive. It's through Jesus Christ, but look how great God is that He, he loves you. He's so merciful that He would give His Son for you. And even if that's offensive, even if our voice shakes, can we still speak the truth? Are we willing to remain faithful to the Lord even if it causes an uproar? Are we filled with the Holy Spirit or is church simply becoming a game that we play on Sunday nights? And I wish I wasn't burdened for that. I'm telling you, that keeps me up more nights at night than I wish it would. And I wish I wasn't burdened for that. And I wish I had a softer message for you this Sunday, but I do get to preach on August 27th, so you can either take that Sunday off or we'll try to have a nicer sermon for you this week. Are we willing to remain faithful to the Lord even if it causes an uproar? That's the question for today. I hope you take it home and chew on that. Let's pray. God, we love you. Forgive us when we get it wrong. I thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for making a way for us when there was no other way. God, I pray our confusion, Lord, about people we've loved who... Maybe they weren't rightly related to you the way that we desired to see them. God, I pray there's mercy for them. And you are a merciful God. God, I pray for this congregation that we would adhere to the truth, whatever the cost. May we be found faithful, Lord, in seasons of difficulty, seasons of testing. But Lord, also, would you fill us with the Holy Spirit? Lord, I pray for evidence to us. I pray for evidence to those around us that we are led by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.